I like that it says that. That's good. Yeah, me too. That's kind of new. Hi, and welcome to On and Off, our podcast covering the on-premise and off-premise beverage alcohol industry. I'm Melissa Dowling, editor of Cheers. And I'm Kyle Swartz, editor of Beverage Dynamics Magazine. Today we're going to be talking about wine, and our guest is one of the country's leading wine educators, Marnie Old, whose name you may recognize from her Vinsights columns in Beverage Dynamics Magazine. Marnie has previously served as the Director of Wine Studies for Manhattan's French Culinary Institute, and she's the author of several books, including Wine, a Tasting Course. Marnie is currently Director of Vinlightenment for the Boisset Collection of family-owned, historic, and unique wineries. Welcome, Marnie, and thanks for joining us. I'm thrilled to be with you guys. It is such fun talking about wine. I would do it every day. Oh, wait, I do. (laughs) These are great jobs to have, aren't they? You know, it's a tough life, but somebody has to do it. Uh, so, Marnie, let's, let's uh, start off with the big picture here. Our research shows that total wine consumption has leveled off. Um, it actually fell slightly in 2019 after 25 consecutive years of growth. Uh, then it rebounded a little bit in 2020, but that may have been driven by pandemic buying. Uh, considering that there's so much more wine available today and so much more information and education about wine, why do you think consumption seems to have slowed? Well, I think there are a couple different factors all operating at once in in different kinds of directions. So on one level, I do think that we in the United States were sort of at the tip of the spear in seeing that trend of trading up to drinking smaller amounts of higher quality wine. This is a global trend. This isn't something that we're seeing only here in North America. Certainly the entire change of regulatory apparatus in the EU was entirely based around the uh, recognition that total wine consumption was going down in volume and that they needed to focus more on improving quality in order to balance out the macroeconomic scale, so to speak. So I think that's part of what's going on is that people are indulging less in volume with wine and preferring to drink higher quality products in smaller amounts. Now, part of that is for basic health and lifestyle reasons. Part of that is also because I do believe that the wine business has gotten a little bit behind in consumer messaging and marketing in the sense that both the beer and the spirits world are certainly making their products easier for younger customers to adopt and explore. And it used to be, I mean, if you think back in the Wayback Machine, almost all of us started out drinking something other than wine in the United States in our early years of being legal. (laughs) And that was usually beer. It was often cocktails, but there were fewer opportunities to trade up to a higher quality product in those categories. Well, that has changed dramatically in recent decades. The explosion of craft beer options, the increased intellectual complexity of the beer world in a way that's almost set up to mirror the interest and curiosity about wine has set up kind of a parallel universe for drinkers to be able to choose their their bliss you know to be able to follow the product that speaks to them now historically the wine world has had a built-in pipeline realistically all the way back as far as the egyptians the ancient egyptians it was true that as people moved up in their you know, social status and wealth, 
they were more likely to choose wine over beer and other alcoholic options in their area. We can see this based on, you know, the importing of higher quality wines from outside of the Egyptian era and the concentration of those in the homes of the wealthy and powerful. Now, the reason for this is kind of obvious. If you think about it, almost for all of human history, wine was naturally a more interesting, uh, higher quality, uh, a more delicious beverage, also one that had more long-term shelf life, even before the days of electricity and refrigeration and our ability to uh, restrict microbiological spoilage the way we can today. And so essentially, wine didn't have a lot of competition. People would cut their teeth on alcohol with any drink that was available in their local area. But as they grew more successful, as they got more spending power in every culture, people would choose and embrace wine. And I do think the wine world has kind of, uh, well, let that go to their heads in the sense that we kind of sit back and wait for customers to come to us rather than moving out into the world to meet them where they live and welcome them and introduce them to wine to get them engaged to get them to join us that has been a weakness of the wine trade in the sense that we still have a reputation for snobbery for elitism for a kind of intellectual hauteur that can be off-putting, especially to younger, newer audiences who maybe don't like the idea that they should buy books and do a lot of homework just to be able to decide what to drink with dinner. Right. I mean, do you think that's why the millennials and younger legal age drinkers just aren't getting into wine at the rate people expected that they would, you know, even though there's certainly more wine available at a range of styles and price points, and there's it's a lot easier to get information and, and be educated. Plus, you know, the younger generation isn't as concerned with tradition or convention or pretension. So, I mean, you think that could be good for the wine industry or it could be bad. So how do you see it? I, I do see it cutting both ways. I, I, I think millennials are we, we know they enjoy alcohol. We know they're drinking. We see the buying patterns changing as they enter the market and become a more and more dominant force. But realistically, the traditional layer of the wine business, the kind of premium tier that we tend to focus on in the wine trade of serious wines, there's no question that the dominant cohort in that group is still the spending power of the baby boomers, right? Because that, that audience is still making up such a massive share of the spending in those higher tiers. I think what's happening with millennials is partly what we were just mentioning before. They have so many more alcoholic choices. And it used to be that choosing anything other than wine automatically put you in a lower quality tier. And that anyone who, and, and let's be honest, not everyone prefers or is willing to spend, I guess is what I mean, to spend more to get a better product. I, I remember the lessons I used to, I learned working in the restaurant trade, which is that uh, my, my chef, when I was very, very young, taught me that there is a bread and butter audience that you always have to serve and satisfy. That is roughly 75% of your market. And that is the audience that is less focused on the quality of what's on the plate. It's more about the experience, the enjoyment, the entertainment, the, the panache. And, and of course, you know, you never want to serve bad food, but these are the people who probably won't notice if the fish is frozen, if you know what I mean. But there is that smaller segment. And depending where you live in the United States, the size of that audience can vary widely. I would say it's average 25%, but um, that's 
a lot higher than it was a couple decades ago, thanks to things like the TV Food Network expanding the kind of foodie audience. And when food moved into the realm of entertainment, it brought drink, of course, along with it. And this gastronomic experience has loomed much larger in the last two decades than it ever did before. So what might have been 10 or 15% of your audience in the 90s is now looking more like 25% of your audience. And that group is the one that they don't mind spending an extra 50 cents for the beer that tastes better. They don't mind spending an extra $10 for the wine that spends that tastes better and so on. But there still always will be this, this kind of mass audience that is more interested in the entertainment, in the fun, in the lifestyle piece of what goes along with um, wine with beer with cocktails with that cultural piece of it and i do think that the wine world has really missed out on this uh, the beer guys didn't miss that message they they absolutely are more fun they're more entertaining they're more engaging in their outreach and and in our lifestyle communications what i see in the wine world is this reluctance to let go of seriousness, that we almost want to kind of prove that, no, we really are intellectuals. We might not have college degrees, but we have master certificates and we really do, you know, you can see the connection between the terroir and the mm -hmm. taste. It's almost defensive, you know, it's almost like we're trying to prove to someone that this is an intellectually valid pursuit. Ultimately, the thing that connects almost everyone who enjoys any alcoholic beverage is that they like to have a good time. And that mm -hmm. doesn't mean that they're necessarily craving lectures about the soil types or necessarily want to learn about which type of barrel is going to result in which type of, of ester. This is something that I think we all in the trade geek out on and mm -hmm. love to use to kind of prove to ourselves our own self-worth, but that sometimes we really need to think more clearly about the message that we want out there to the universe. Wine is delicious. Wine is magical, mysterious. It changes every time you drink it. It's alive. It is a more pure expression of, you know, the concept of whole food than almost anything I can think of, right? It's a one ingredient product that can somehow give us this magical array of flavors. And yet in the wine business, we manage to, you know, we sap that of its magic. We, we focus on data and details to in a way that I think it just kind of it, it it makes something that is not boring quite boring and and we have to be really careful about that and even when we look at traditional marketing I understand right now that uh, producers and retailers are alike are, are feeling torn between those two big sources of dollars you've got to choose between the priorities of the baby boom which are so different right from the priorities of these younger audiences when do you start to shift your focus and and really kind of cater to that younger audience it's been hard to know if it's safe to pull the trigger but i have to tell you that even among uh the boomer groups the folks who are drinking wine they want the pleasure factor they want the embrace of the moment they want that the lifestyle experience is still important even to that foodie fringe and we need to remember to always cater to that in the wine trade to make sure that it's about the experience it's about the fun and ultimately to remember to put our customers tastes before our own because that is one of the very bad habits that we pick up in the wine trade if you spend enough time reading wine books and taking wine classes and doing side-by-side -side wine tastings you acquire tastes that aren't shared by your audience and it can be really 
uh, I think, tempting to try and reflect that to your audience to, to sort of hold back on the things that you think might distract them into a different direction you don't enjoy and want to introduce them to the complexity you know and love. There's always going to be a small percentage of your audience that's looking for adventure, that's seeking authenticity, that wants to be able to taste the history in the glass of a great burgundy or something like that. But that should not lead you to decide to withhold fun, goofy stuff too. Like I, I still remember the first tasting, I, I did a trade trip to South Africa about 10 years ago with, you know, it's the usual press tour. There's a whole bunch of wine writers on a bus. You know, they bring us to a winery and they put us out and we start walking around to the tables and tasting. And there was a, a very lovely uh, wine writer who was at the table next to me. And I saw her swirl just out of the side of my eye, peripheral vision. I saw her swirl a glass, put her nose into the glass and recoil physically so violently that the wine literally splashed down her shirt. And <laughs> I could not imagine what was going on. I assume maybe it was a badly corked wine or something like that. No, 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 no. You want to know what it was? It was one of those coffee flavored Pinotage wines that had been through a non-traditional fermentation. There's a stage in the fermentation where if you add charred oak at the right temperature at the right stage, you get a completely different flavor profile, lactones and esters that make the wine smell like you're at Starbucks. It smells like an espresso drink. Mm. That wine smelled like a blend of like caramel macchiato and Zinfandel somehow, like just mashed up together and really vividly. And it was enough to just startle this woman so badly. We in the wine world need to recognize that we might not want a caramel macchiato red wine, mm -hmm. but if our customers do, we should be making every effort to stock that as well. Absolutely. I, you know, I, I completely agree with you. I just, uh, this morning, I was starting to work on my big category, alcohol categories trends for the July, August issue of Beverage Dynamics Magazine. And in my wine section, the first sentence I wrote was, or the first line I wrote was, wine needs to recalibrate. That was the phrase I wrote, wine needs to recalibrate. And so I would speak with more and more of my wine friends, my wine retail friends. They all say wine doesn't know how to market to millennials. They need to recalibrate and think about how they're going to connect with millennials. I'm just wondering, I know you already spoke on that a little bit, but just your thoughts a little bit more on how the wine market can open up more to millennial drinkers. Absolutely. Well, well, part of it is uh, sort of cutting through the forest of details that we present in wine labels and for focusing more on emotion, more on excitement, more on entertainment, more on engagement. And I know, unfortunately, many of us in the wine trade rec uh, remember some bad experiences from like, I don't know, the, the rise of the critter wines in the 90s and the aughts, you know, that, you know, kind of <laughs> posed a slight problem for Australian wine producers moving forward after those took hold too strongly. But there really is a lesson to be learned there in the sense that I strongly feel that wine drinkers have been asking the wine trade for what they want and being pretty clear about what they want for decades. And we are so incredibly slow to react. Now, I understand that planting vines, we're, we're talking about uh, a project that it's not like making vodka where you can just turn on the tap and make more once a product proves popular and you want to meet demand. You need to do a lot of advanced planning. You have to do a lot of due diligence. We do have a product that matures for months in vats or in barrels and then for years more in bottles. And we do have to make sure everything we do is sound, right? However, we have been 
uncomfortable with letting go of some of the tradition. And, and believe me, I, I tend to drink mostly the most traditional styles of wine. I'm, it's not that I think we should stop making them. It's that I think we need to recognize that many of our customers want something else, or at least need something else as a stepping stone before they can discover the beauty, the joy uh, that comes from those specific wines. Part of the challenge with marketing has been that we are a little too serious about ourselves, not willing to let our hair down and have some fun with it. I happen to work with a company that does a number of very traditional projects. We make wines from Burgundy, we make wines from Napa Valley, but we also have lines of wines that are less serious, more fun, that are less specific about the source of their fruit, but more focused on the taste inside the bottle, the package, the look, the feel, and particularly the tone, um, bringing down, letting wine's hair down a little bit, right? And part of that, you know, this sounds so silly, but I've been saying this for years and it was not just when I started working with this company, but we have a reluctance in the world of wine to acknowledge how customers actually use our product, right? Now, in the beer world, it's not quite the same thing. People do seem to acknowledge that People are enjoying their beer at parties. They're having fun. They're connecting with other people. In the wine world, we've somehow taken the social piece out of this incredibly social beverage. Wine and all alcoholic beverages ultimately are a way that we as humans seek to connect with other humans. It's something that brings down our guarded anxieties and allows us to just flow freely. And yet in the world of wine, we, we almost seem to put up more barriers rather than to bring them down. And so I think just having a little playfulness, having a little acknowledgement that many people when they're drinking wine, it's not just in a party situation, it's often in a romantic situation. It's often between a man and a woman or uh, someone and their partner. It's something that is being used to help us relax at the end of the day and connect. And I don't see much acknowledgement of that in the wine business. I always think it's a little silly when I see you know, a company that makes, yeah, maybe it's running shoes or some other kind of consumer product using some kind of sexy romantic situation to sell their product. But wine, uh, uh, we are as close to a sex adjacent product as you can really get, certainly in temporal terms, right? And so because of that, I do think that people in the wine trade need to recognize what are people looking for when they're shopping for wine? It is often something to impress a date, to please a husband or a wife, to, you know, move a conversation out of the living room and dining room and, and, just to enjoy company, to enjoy social connection. And that is something that I don't see as much of in the wine world as I see very clearly understood in the spirits world, very clearly understood in the beer world. And I think wine has been very slow to catch up. So what about in the on-premise? You know, what can bars and restaurants do to you know, ensure that great wine experience? Well, part of it, I think, is that we, you know, I hate to say this, but I, I feel like as a sommelier, I'm allowed to, you know, <laughs> sometimes I think we need to get over ourselves a little bit. There, there was a period of time, you know, 30, 40 years ago when there really seriously was a problem where restaurants would just list wines by grape variety, not tell you the brand, not tell you the vintage, not tell you what you were drinking. And you were expected to just make decisions and trust them as to whether you wanted Chardonnay or Cabernet and that's it. You can still sometimes see those kinds of wine lists in like 
country clubs, you know, and the occasional sort of chain hotel, right? However, we've gotten to a stage now where we're almost bombing customers with an excess of information more than they want or need and mm -hmm. making it actually harder to make decisions as a result. Now, I, I'm in no way arguing that there should be less transparency. I think that's, that's absolutely important. But we can use our wine lists in ways that can help make decision making easier by giving more indication of not necessarily descriptors, because I, I think that those sometimes scare customers too when they, they see something, this says chocolate and cherry, and that says, you know, I don't know, bay leaf and cranberry. That can be a little disorienting, especially if they pick up the glass and don't recognize or find those flavors. It can be a little disorienting. But just giving people a sense of, well, let's think about it. As a sommelier, you already know what the key variables are that make somebody decide to drink this or that. It's a preference primarily for color, white, red, pink. And then after that, it goes to weight, light, medium, heavy, right? Then it goes to sweetness, dry, <laughs> off dry, sweet, right? Like these are the primary access points that, that people make decisions based on. And then the other thing that I think I don't see enough of in the world of restaurants, and this is partly because, you know, for years I trained people how to design wine lists at the French Culinary Institute. And uh, my mantra was always, you know, zero tolerance has no place on a wine list, right? You want to make sure you have something for everyone, unlike a menu where you may only in practicality be able to be to list or offer six, eight, or 10 entrees. Wine lists tend to be considerably bigger and you need to not leave anyone out. I see far too many wine lists that go in one direction or the other and do not try to even attempt a balance. The one that gets a lot of press and that, you know, we geek out about and applaud and, you know, you see the, the foodie fringe loves this, but the bread and butter crowd doesn't, are wine lists that, force a customer to try something new as if they need to be dislodged from their familiar preferences, right? So these are the wine lists that say, if I put a California Chardonnay on the wine list, nobody's going to order anything else. So I'm going to force you to learn to love Greco de Tufo, or, you know, I'm going to make sure you try this Vino Verde or whatever the case is. I see a lot of that kind of, um, I'm going to disorient you to the point where you feel you need to ask my assistance in making a decision. Mm. And this is, uh, uh, you know, uh, it's the opposite of empathetic behavior. You know, mm. your customer, you're deliberately not just disorienting them, but discomforting them. And that really has no place in the hospitality world. If people want California Chardonnay, offer California Chardonnay. If they are curious and want to try something new, you have other options that they can step off and, you know, try that Gruner Veltliner or, or taste that Chenin Blanc, whatever the case is. So I really get uncomfortable when I see, and this, this tends to happen with relatively young and inexperienced sommeliers who, you know, pay very close attention to the, the training and certification and to the, the press in the wine trade, but aren't sure how to translate that into inviting guests to an adventurous experience and getting their consent rather than just dropping them in the deep end of the pool and thinking that it's cool. It is so not cool. <laughs> I'm sorry, that, that drives me crazy when I see it. But then of course the other, the flip side of that is there are also far too many programs that just prefer the repetitive, familiar 
don't want to offer any adventurous new uh, step off the beaten track kinds of options. And so unfortunately, I, I tend to see this when I'm looking at wine lists, there's almost always this kind of dichotomy. It's like, which type of wine list is this? When in reality, the best one is that tries to bring a little element of adventure, a little element of familiarity and give guests reasonable options in all of those price points. Right. Absolutely. You know, uh, one other trend I was writing about in the, uh, as I said, the top categories trends article I'm working on for the July, August issue of Beverage Dynamics magazine is the broad trend of sustainable alcohol that has taken hold in recent time. And certainly that is uh, apparent in wine. We're seeing more and more wine labels come up with the sustainable alcohol uh, emphasized on the packaging. Uh, you know, what, what does that even mean anymore? Is that a term that means anything? And why does a consumer uh, caught on to this recently? Well, I think this is another place where we see people's preferences in the food universe easily migrate into their drink preferences. And for any retailer, any sommelier, any wine trade operator of any kind who wants to get ahead of the trends, all you need to do is look at the food world, apply some imagination to how that could apply in the drink world. I mean, if you think about it, I, you and I were just talking about this yesterday, Kyle, that the trends that we see in the consumer universe are not all that different than they were 10 years ago, 20 years ago, even 25 years ago, when I was a young sommelier, we were seeing dry rosé on fire. We were seeing convenience packaging take off. We were seeing people beginning to look for healthier options in wine and other alcoholic drinks. But what's happening now, sustainability is really an outgrowth of the shift and focus towards organic production in food. And of course, I think that there's, uh, you know, the on the wine side of it in particular, we just have this challenge that the U.S. regulations for labeling wine organic have been set in this way that kind of handcuffs producers so that there really is such a challenge. If you want to call a wine an organic wine, you have to agree not to use any sulfur dioxide at all, which unfortunately means that your wine is less shelf stable. You can get into that situation. I've had many times where you open a case of white wines to stock them onto shelves and realize that every bottle is a different color <laughs> from white to gold and everything in between because of the variable oxidation from one bottle to the next. And there's no producer of a consumer product who's really comfortable embracing that kind of product variation. What we have is this situation where sustainable has been sort of embraced by the wine trade as, as the next nearest replacement to organic. Mm -hmm. As we do see increases in organic viticulture, more and more growers willing to take on the onerous certification expenses and, and requirements and inspection standards for organic certification. More and more of them, of course, are going in that direction, but we are still in a situation with our high land prices in the United States where other countries will always have the leg up and have an easier time doing that than we do. It is simply more cost-effective and easier to go organic in Chile or in Spain for example, than it will be here. And that challenges us to try and catch up with that trend. Now, sustainable, you ask, does it actually mean anything? I don't know. You know, I, I spend a lot of time these days still dealing with the general public, the wine interested general public, of course. So we're talking about the top layer, but for them, I get mixed reactions to sustainability. Um, there's a 
perception from some that it is kind of that next best. If it's not organic, then at least I should get sustainable. And I look for that word and that's kind of a buzzword that gives me some sense of trust in the company. But then there are others who are highly aware that there's no regulatory meaning to that term on a wine label um, or as far as I know in most other food packaging, unless it's some kind of self-regulating organization that, that says you can only use our seal with this word sustainable if you meet our standards. If you're just seeing sustainable, it, it's um, there's a lot of folks who perceive that as simple greenwashing, you know, just an attempt to, you know, put a nice green spin on a product that is otherwise conventionally farmed. Right. Well, I know there is a lot more to say about wine, but uh, we're unfortunately out of time. So we'll, we'll have to do this again because I have a lot more questions. <laughs> But I, I, well, yes, I Marty, you must come back and join us again. Thank you so much for taking time today for this podcast. We really do appreciate it. Yeah, thank you so much, Marty. And, and thanks to all of you out there listening to On and Off. And join us next time when we'll be talking about yet another fascinating topic that spans the retail and restaurant worlds. Cheers. Cheers. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. Thank you so much, Marty. Again, we really do appreciate you taking time out of your uh, business. Oh, no worries. This. Yeah. Glad to help. <laughs>